everybody. Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast. Great to have you with us today. Trust you are all doing well. Want to say a huge thank you to every single one of our listeners. David and I are humbled that we get to do this and that you all count it worthy of your time to tune in. And so we are picking up where we left off from our last episode, talking about the Holy Spirit. If you didn't catch that, that's a great overview of the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures. Today, we want to delve more specifically and deeply into uh, the Holy Spirit in the church and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be walking through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll see how far we get. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Before we do that, let me just say for all of our listeners, if you haven't heard yet, we've just uh, on the cusp of releasing a new tool called pulpitai.com. Uh, that is going to be helpful for churches all over the place in terms of helping to create supportive content for their sermons that they're writing and preaching, podcasts perhaps that they're producing. Um, really encourage you to check it out. We've already had, I think at this point, close to if not over a thousand people um, signal their interest for that, eager to uh, test it um, and try it out in their context. So you can do that as well. Pulpitai.com. Really, really cool. David, how are you today? Good to be with you. Good to be with you, Jake. So we are carrying on this conversation uh, and we want to waste no time and get into 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because we're just going to come at it, expositing it verse by verse, and we'll see what happens from there. Uh, the reason we're doing this is because here at my church in Los Angeles and also Nashville, we are doing a conference in our Los Angeles area. Uh centered around the Holy Spirit. And we have yourself coming to join us along with your beautiful wife, Elaine, and then also Dr. Jack Deere uh, will be joining us as well for three days of seeking God. And it'll be so powerful, wonderful worship, and lots of room made for ministry and, and learning about the Holy Spirit. Really looking forward to it. And maybe some of you who are listening would like to come join us. You can register hs-conference.com, uh, I believe is the link. If that doesn't work, then just go to c3losangeles.com and click around on there until you find it. Uh, but it's going to be an amazing time. And we thought it'd be cool to, even just for the sake of our own church here, to do a couple of episodes on the Holy Spirit uh, to help people grow and learn and also to increase their appetite for the things of the Spirit um, so that we are all eagerly desiring to live supernatural lives. First Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says this, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Follow the way of love. There he's picking up on his emphasis in chapter 13. And eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. So let's stop there. What's going on here in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 1? Well, I, you know, as the chapter proceeds, we'll understand a bit more. And Paul is talking in chapters 12, 13, and 14 about the work of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, he's correcting some uh, abuses. And it's it's always important to remember that the cure for abuse is not disuse, but correct use. And so just because we see uh, gifts of the Spirit being, for instance, used inappropriately or what we would say is out of order, uh, you don't just kind of jump on that and say, well, we're not, we're going to close down the work of the Spirit entirely. You know, you say, well, okay, let's get this back on track. And that's what Paul was doing because there was a bunch of disorder 
in the Corinthian congregation. And he's not telling them. What he's not telling them to do is to give up on the manifestations, the gifts of the Holy, supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you know, you've just got, here's some guidelines. You've got to correct your use. And so one of the issues was the inappropriate or improper use of tongues, whereas people were speaking in the congregation, um, speaking in tongues in the congregation uh, out, out loud and to the point where, you know, their voice was commanding the attention of everybody else. Uh, and there's no interpretation given. And so Paul is saying, well, that's basically selfish because nobody else understands what you're saying. So you're putting on a nice little performance here, but nobody else is benefiting. And the gifts are given for the common good. He said that in chapter 12. So the gifts are not given for the benefit of the person uh, operating in the gift. They're given for the benefit of the rest of the people. So it's not just, I'm not going to, or at least I'm not standing up, speaking in tongues so that I can put on a show, so that I can feel goosebumps, so that people can look up to me as more spiritual than anybody else. That's not the point. And that, by implication, is some of what might have been going on in the church there. And he's saying, no, there's supposed to be a practical tangible benefit here for the kingdom of God and for the people. So he's, he's saying prophecy is superior to tongues uh, unless tongues is interpreted. And that's the key. And, and by the way, there's a difference between prophecy and interpreted tongues. They are not the same thing. Otherwise, why would God have, you know, what, one is God speaking to people. The other is people speaking to God. That's how Paul himself defines it. So he starts off here, which you've quoted, by saying, desire the gifts, especially to prophesy. And in our last conversation, we alluded to the fact that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was referred to for hundreds of years by the Jewish theologians as the spirit of prophecy. And that was is quite understandable in that the Spirit was linked with prophecy in the Old Testament, or even the great prophetic writers were anointed by the Spirit or manifestations of prophecy, whatever. So this, so that prophecy is a catch-all term. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, Joel said. That's what happened at Pentecost. They be, we, we connect Pentecost with tongues, but actually they were prophesying. You know, they were speaking the great things of God. And... Uh, they were speaking in tongues and they were prophesying. So, so prophecy is a really important uh, gift. And, and that's why Paul says here, desire especially to prophesy. He's correcting uh, a situation where people were speaking in tongues. There was no interpretation. There was no benefit other than the person speaking in tongues kind of got a bit of the limelight or felt good about themselves or whatever, but it was in disorder. And actually, he goes on to point out, if somebody who isn't a believer comes into your meeting, which is interesting because Paul is assuming that non-Christians will be in church in all of our church services. And so, you know, if they're there, they're going to think you're crazy, you know. But but if you're prophesying accurately, it's going to 
the uh, knife through their heart, revealing their thoughts, and they may get saved. Okay, cool. And we'll, we'll get there. So essentially here in verse one, follow the way of love. He's speaking to their motive because their motive was impure. They're practicing gifts for the purpose of, as you said, getting the limelight, getting attention, comparing themselves to one another. It's causing division. But at the same time, I still want you to eagerly desire gifts. So like you said, the answer is not disuse, it's correction. Um, especially prophesy, uh, especially prophecy. And then he goes on to say why in verse two, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. So there you go. There's the definition of speaking in tongues. It's speaking to God, people speaking to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the spirit, which is probably pretty good foundation for understanding what tongues sounds like when he says nobody understands them. Perhaps we can talk about that different kinds of tongues, because there appears to be different kinds. You had mentioned the day of Pentecost um, in comparison to what we see here. Uh, but the one who prophesies speaks to people. So there's uh, God speaking to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. I'm reading from the NIV, by the way. Um, and then just two more verses. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. So it's really strengthening for me as an individual believer when I speak in tongues but the one who prophesies edifies the church. And so that there's your context there for all you who are listening. The reason Paul says, I especially want you to prophesy in your gatherings is because prophecy edifies the whole church. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues. We should talk about that. That's an interesting phrase, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. And I take Paul to mean there that he doesn't literally mean they're greater in the sense of like they're a better Christian, but the gift is more contextually useful in the setting of a church gathered together because again, tongues edifies the individual, prophecy edifies the church. So there's a couple of things, threads there for us to pick up on. I don't know if you, any one of them stand out to you first where you want to go. Well, I, I'd like to um, address this to begin with. Uh, the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. Uh, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So a tongue is a language, it's an unknown language. Uh, that doesn't mean that um, it, it, it's just gobbledygook. Uh, it just means it's not a language that is understood by uh, most of the people in the congregation and, and may not be understood by the person who's speaking it. So it's incomprehensible. Uh, and um, you know, you, 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 if you go to a cosmopolitan city like Toronto or London, for instance, New York, be another example, probably Los Angeles, you, you run across people speaking every possible conceivable language. And some of them sound like they sound fake, like they sound really weird. Mm -hmm. They don't sound like real. <laughs> I, ha I had that experience recently. I was at a, a snowboarding last year. And we were getting on the ski lift and these guys behind us were speaking this language that literally, literally sounded like nothing I'd ever heard in my whole life. And, you know, and people say, uh, oh, that person, I heard them speaking in tongues and it sounded weird, didn't sound like a real language. But there are lots of languages to our ear, real languages that obviously are, that sound weird. So I mm -hmm. just think we should stop making judgments like that. Anyway, so let's ask a clarifying question there, though, because I'm can expound upon your position. Your position is that there is a speaking in tongues where it's not a known human language. Is that correct? I think I think it, well, the tongues of men and of angels. I think it's conceivable 
that some tongues are not known human languages, uh, but I also think that many are. And my assumption on the day of Pentecost is that God gave the disciples the miraculous ability to speak in various foreign languages because those the people who are listening could understand a multitude of different languages that were being spoken so they seem to have this miraculous ability given to them to uh speak in what were known foreign uh known human languages foreign Correct. to themselves that they right. they didn't and they wouldn't even be aware of what they were speaking. And mm -hmm. I've got a perfect example of that because in uh, about six or seven years ago, my wife and I were in the church that I had started in 1980 in England and uh, Emmanuel Church Durham, and uh, which has just op opened a new building a few weeks ago. It's absolutely amazing what God's doing under Pastor Alan Bell there. So I'm just giving a, a big plug for that. I love that church, obviously. Um, but we were there, and Elaine was uh, up, got up on the platform, and she was singing in tongues, and then she interpreted. And it was, you know, the presence of God just, it increased in the room. There's no doubt about it. Anyway, but in the, in the break, a young lady came up, and she was just shaking. And she said, well, your wife was just, she was singing in perfect, she said, I'm visiting from New Zealand. That's what she said. Your wife was singing in perfect Maori. And the interpretation she gave was a word-for-word -word translation of the Maori that she had sung in, into English. And I mean, that's amazing. But the other part of it is that if God hadn't sent a Maori-speaking New Zealander into a church in Northern England, you know, on that very Sunday morning, I mean, talk about miraculous. Mm -hmm. Divine providence, um, yeah. Nobody in the room, including Elaine, would have known that she was speaking any known human language at all. It would just have been, well, that was a tongue and interpretation, and it was edifying. And if you were sensitive to the Spirit, you would have felt an increase in the sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But that's what happened. And so I think that, and, and, and that's just one example. I could give other examples of people that I've known that have had the same experience. So you can be speaking in a language you think you're speaking in tongues in maybe a language that doesn't exist on earth, but actually you are speaking a language and you find out when somebody comes up to you and says, how did you know mm -hmm. that language that you were speaking in? For instance, a Botswanan tribal dialect. That was another friend of mine happened to mm. him. Share that story. Well, he was, he was skeptical of, he was somewhat skeptical of this concept of you know of somebody going laying hands on someone and then falling down under the power of the spirit he was a little skeptical of that and he was in a meeting and uh you know this was happening and uh and he was just observing it and he, he was kind of you know observing it anyway and then a gentleman came up whose name I could give. It's Roland Baker. He and his wife, Heidi, have planted thousands of churches in Africa mm -hmm. um, and laid hands on him and prayed for him. And my poor friend, against his will, so to speak, <laughs> was on the ground and couldn't get up. 
under the power of God, and he started speaking in a tongue. And uh, and at the end of it, this all, um, and and God humbled. You know, it's like David danced before the Lord, and his wife said, "You humiliated yourself." And Duncan, my friend, you know, he he felt God was humbling him. You know, he, he felt he was looking stupid, uh, and and but God was dealing with his heart anyway. And when it was all over, the meeting was over, this lady who was present came and said, when were you in Botswana? And he said, well, I've never been there in my life. And he said, well, you were praising Jesus, telling him how wonderful he was in my Botswana mm. tribal dialect. Now, Amazing. what are the odds of that? Not not much. And what, what are the odds of, I mean, this did take place in Africa. So there were maybe a bit higher odds of a person speaking that particular dialect being present uh, than there were the lady from New Zealand. But mm -hmm. I think the odds were still pretty remote. You know, mm -hmm. it could have been a dialect that only, you know, a few thousand people spoke and she was in the meeting. Well, what's interesting to me is in both of these instances, whether it be your wife or your friend Duncan, the, the person speaking in tongues is not necessarily concerned with, is there someone here to interpret? And I think someone, sometimes churches get themselves into trouble when they are, uh, they, they, at least from my perspective, and I could be wrong, but they misunderstand the guidelines Paul lays down um, here in 1 Corinthians 14 and are led into the belief that speaking in tongues is never permissible out loud in any kind of corporate church gathering. But obviously your friend Duncan didn't really seem to have much say in that matter. And God on the other end of things took care of it and and there was somebody there to interpret it. But it's not yeah, as though she got was, up and gave that interpretation to the whole congregation. Oh, because because it wasn't even in a, it was in an informal group uh, mm -hmm. of people that were fellowshipping together and eating dinner. While all these other people were under the power of God, Duncan was uh, eating their ice cream, actually, <laughs> ice cream, and he was nick nicking their ice cream. Well, because it was all going to melt and go to waste. And he, he's in the middle of all this gobbling everybody else's ice cream when the power of God came on him. So, but whereas with Elaine, that was in a worship service, and she got up to the platform and commanded the attention of the congregation. So mm -hmm. that's, so on the one case, um, and and that's why she gave the interpretation, because it would have been out of order if she hadn't. In Duncan's situation, it wasn't even that people were particularly paying attention to him. And he wasn't, there was no microphone. He wasn't on a platform. He was just speaking in tongues. But this lady was present and overheard. You know, she was standing close by, maybe, M must have been, and overheard. Mm-hmm. But what is interesting is in both of those cases, they were expressing the great things of God, which is what it says they were doing on Pentecost, telling the great things of God. In other words, it was not prophecy. Prophecy, it was people speaking to God. That's how Paul describes it. It's Jesus, you are amazing. Jesus, you are wonderful. It wasn't the Lord says to you, you know, whatever. That's prophecy. So interpreted tongues is not the same as prophecy. It's allowing someone in, in your personal worship of God and of Christ and of declaring his glory. Um, 
And it is it is allowing someone else is allowing the rest of the congregation in on mm -hmm. this expression. Uh, and that's I think tongues what, is a lot more akin to worship than it is to prophecy. And there's probably a reason why tongues is often sung and why Paul even links it. Uh, well, this is probably debatable, but when he talks about singing spiritual songs, um, certainly more than a few people would take that to mean singing, singing to God in a. Uh, in a tongue, in a language that you don't necessarily know, that may not even be a known human language. And and that, I think, speaks to the fact that worship, worshiping God is always edifying of the self. If tongues edifies the individual, well, of, of course, it's a lot like worship in that sense, because worship edifies the individual as well. It encourages you. I mean, it strengthens you to stand and worship God and to trust God and to express your adoration for Him. Um, I mean... That's at least my experience. I'm sure more than a few would attest to that same. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. I, I do think, I, you know, I like you. You seem to be a little bit more fluid, I guess, in terms of whether or not a tongue is a known human language or an unknown human language. Could seems less. It could be either. Yeah. And we may or may not know. We may think we're speaking in an unknown one, um, but in fact, it is a known human language and we just don't know it. When we speak in tongues on our own, in our own private prayer time, is the likelihood there of that being a known human language, d does it decrease by some degree? Or? I don't think it makes any difference. You know, okay. Some people have one tongue. Some people have several tongues. Uh, mm. But, you know, I, I think uh, that the important thing, point Paul is making is that speaking in tongues in your private prayer room is edifying. It builds you up. And it does, um, w but when it comes to in public, and where I draw the line is, uh, if someone is commanding the presence of the congregation during the worship service, then that person is professing, or you know, they're attempting to uh, hopefully Give successfully praise. operate in a genuine gift. If it's genuine, it will be interpreted. And it will not be interpreted by a prophecy, will not be interpreted by, thus says the Lord, A, B, and C. That is not a legitimate interpretation of a tongue. And I've noticed that in churches where that is a prophecy is given in response to a tongue, it's it generally there's no power behind it because it's misplaced. And um, it's, it's not a, a legitimate interpretation. And we need, you know, it's just a point that we need some teaching around. But in a situation where, you know, Paul is concerned about what happens when unbelievers come into the room. Well, if you're in a prayer meeting, if you're in a leadership meeting, if you're in a small group where you all know each other, then I don't see any problem in everybody praying in tongues. Uh, I'm not saying you have to, but I don't see a particular problem in that in the sense that nobody is professing to or trying to move out in a gift. Everybody's just speaking in tongues. There's no offense given because everybody there knows what's happening. There's no outsider. There's no unsafe person. Um, there's nothing, you know. They're all that, edifying themselves they're together. They're all edifying themselves <laughs> together, right? right? And, and, uh, and that's what I was talking about when I think people draw too strict a line. Yeah, yeah. To me, if you're in a gathering of Christians, it just, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Because Paul's point is the impact on 
the unbeliever that may come in. Yeah. And firstly, and secondly, his point is somebody speaking above the voice of the crowd and commanding people's attention. So you can speak in tongues quietly. For instance, during a worship time, sometimes I sing in tongues. Same. Um, and while worship is going on, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Possibly the person beside me, but at most, and it's generally my wife anyway, but most people wouldn't even know that mm-hmm. you're speaking in tongues. So there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing yep. out of order with that at all. Yep. yep. And especially you, if you're in a worship service, uh, you know, you're probably in a lot of settings sitting towards the front. If, you know, if not next to another pastor, another mature believer, who's not going to take offense Uh, to me, these little nuances matter because the heart of what Paul is saying is important to keep at the forefront here, um, in order to properly interpret his, his instruction. So yeah, that's good. What would you do with, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Let's just, let's obviously there's a comma, but I'd rather you prophesy, but let's just take that phrase. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Well, of course. Uh, he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. You know, he let's, is... let's just ask the question. Do you take Paul as believing that every Christian can or should pursue that gift? Well, I think it's dangerous to build a doctrine on a half a sentence like that. <laughs> And there isn't evidence. If you go through the New Testament as a whole, there's abundant evidence that speaking in tongues is a very common phenomenon. Right. But there isn't concrete evidence that speaking in tongues was the the, uh, inevitable and undeniable Mm -hmm. evidence. Manifestation. Received the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It certainly seemed to accompany uh on a number of occasions but there are other occasions when it isn't mentioned at all when people get converted so i think we have to be really careful um you know he's speaking in context here of you know a situation where everybody's speaking in tongues right everybody there's there's disorder there's all sorts of people speaking in right. tongues out intentional of disorder they're 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 intentional Climbing right. over one another. And so he's saying, okay, I want everybody to speak in tongues. He, he's saying, uh, you know, I want all of you who are speaking in tongues, but doing it out of order. I want you all to speak in tongues. He's mm-hmm. not making the statement, I believe that every Christian should speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. He's When he's saying all, you all, he's addressing the group of people who were tongue speakers in the congregation. And he's mm-hmm. saying, I don't want you to stop. I want you all, or in your American phrase, I want y'all to 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 keep on speaking in tongues, right? Mm-hmm. And so here's the here's the danger of building a doctrine on a on a, a sentence that without context, a verse without a context pretext. So I'll repeat it again in case people didn't get it, that they're all speaking in tongues. The people that Paul is addressing at Corinth, they're all speaking in tongues. There's a lot of disorder in it. He's trying to shut down the disorder, but he doesn't want to shut down the gift. Mm-hmm. So he says, I'm not telling you all 
that are speaking in tongues. I'm not telling you all to stop. I want you all to continue speaking in tongues. You all being, not right. every single Christian that's ever been saved, but this group of tongue-speaking people in Corinth. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, but even more to prophesy. He's now taking the tongue speakers, let's call them that, the tongue speakers, and he's now saying, okay, don't stop doing that, but refocus because it's more advantageous to the purposes mm -hmm. of God and his church that you prophesy mm -hmm. than that you speak in tongues. I want yeah, you yeah. to speak in tongues. Yeah, yeah. That's good. But I yeah. want you even more to prophesy. That's good. And yeah. Again, uh, that doesn't mean every Christian is always supposed to prophesy. He's, mm. he's speaking to this group of people. Right, right. But every Christian should live a supernaturally empowered life, uh, which can often often be summarized as a prophetic life, if you will. The only thing I would add to that, and I am in alignment with you there, the only thing I would add to it for my own personal you know, experience and I guess wiring when Paul makes statements like the the one who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, and then later on in verse uh, 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul obviously has a high view here of this gift. And my encouragement to, to Christians, no matter who I meet, is seek God for the gift. A ask him. Um, and... You know, I guess, you know, see what happens there. But I think it's okay to pursue that gift if indeed right. it is edifying of the believer. And Paul seemed to love doing it because he apparently did it a lot. Um, I, th I think that that's an okay encouragement to give people. Yeah, back when I became a Christian or in the early days of when I was a Christian and, you know, people were trying to negotiate the charismatic versus non-charismatic. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was a saying, seek not, forbid not. And mm. the problem with that saying is that Paul doesn't say that. He says, seek and forbid not. Right. Elsewhere, he says, right. forbid not, speaking in right. tongues, but it, but it's better to prophesy. But he says, seek, right? Mm. And, mm -hmm. But he's saying, seek the gifts that edify. Right. And eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. Eagerly desire. So it's not as if it's passive and we're not going to seek for the manifestations of God. Um but neither are we going to quench the spirit. No, we're supposed to seek um, and not forbid. That's mm -hmm. his, that's his uh, admonition. That's, that's what he's trying to express here. And I'll tell you what, here in our last conversation, we're talking about John Wimber. And uh, I, I, my view is that most of us are Wimberites. A lot of people now don't even know who John Wimber was. I get staggered. I say, mm. John Wimber, well, who was he? You know, but John Wimber, on the one occasion which I was privileged to hear him speak, was toward the end of his life, uh, unfortunately. But um, he, uh, he expounded in a most extraordinary way one, uh, the very last verse of this chapter that we're, we're, uh, discussing today, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And he said, you know, and here's along the lines of seek not, forbid not. He said, we read this, all things should be done decently and in order. That's the, that's what Paul says. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, he was saying we bring a uh, framework of our thinking to that. Decently and in order excludes all these messy gifts of the Spirit and all the rest of it. 
And so he says, the way we read that is all things should be done decently and in order. But he said, I don't think that's what Paul meant when he wrote it at all. I think he, he read it th this way. He wrote it this way. All things should be done decently. Mm. That's Great. different, right? That's an emphasis. And there in a moment, this rock blues musician, whatever John Wimber was, not theologically educated, blew away mm -hmm. years and years and years of my exegetical study of the Greek text with one great trumpet blast of truth, all things <laughs> done, you know, decently in order. And, you know, the, where there's no oxen in the stall, there's no mess. Does, are we going to have a mess when, uh, you know, when, when gifts of the Spirit operate? Well, may, maybe. But mm -hmm. um, is there a mess when we have, you know, children and diapers and so on? Well, yeah, there's a mess, but there's life. So mm -hmm. I'd rather have life and try to clean it up and, and teach people how to do it properly than just have death and, and, and walk away from everything that God wants. So, you know, Paul is in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. I mean, he's, he's saying it's so important. He's, the presence of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are critically important. They need to be exercised and manifested. It's just we've got to get it right. And you, Corinthians, you're messing it up here. And I'm, I'm correcting you. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but let's mm -hmm. put things back on the right mm -hmm. foundation. Yeah. Amen. All things should be done decently and in order. That that's so great. What a great teacher he was. Um, okay, let's let's uh, sum this conversation up or round it out rather with uh, two final segments. Uh, one, let's just hash out something we've already read, and then we'll look at. Um, what you referenced earlier in terms of the presence of unbelievers in the gathering and how prophecy can powerfully impact them. And so uh, looking at prophecy here at the start of chapter 14, the one who's prophes prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging and comfort. Um, so help us understand what the gift of prophecy is. Sometimes people have caution um, when they're, they have caution around the gift of prophecy because of um, warnings in the Old Testament in regards to prophesying wrongly, um, you know, getting God's message incorrect or maybe hearing him incorrectly and therefore delivering the wrong thing. And so they're, they're can be quite fearful. Uh, Paul seems to be a bit more liberal here in terms of his permissiveness to, you know, for people to prophesy. So help us understand this difference between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy, is there any difference? Um, well, there's a massive and, difference. The Old okay. Testament prophets were national prophets. They mm -hmm. prophesied to the king and to the people. Uh, and uh, uh, I mean, it, I mean, you know, that's, that's a catch-all statement, but it's pretty mm -hmm. accurate. And because of the authority that they carried, and many of them were writing scripture, even though they didn't know it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why God was so strict. And, you know, well, if someone's a false prophet, they need to be taken out and stoned. Uh, and so prophets were not just people standing up, giving nice little, you know, words or predictions about the future. The, the, the heart of Old Testament prophecy was calling people back to obedience to the covenant. That's the heart of it. The predict. The predictive part of it was secondary almost. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part, a lot of the predictive part was if you don't repent and it, you mm-hmm. know, this is the bad things what that will happen. happen. Mm-hmm. If you do repent and obey God, these are the good things that will happen. That's a lot of the predictive part of it. Right. So it's very ethical in nature. Which and even that was just restating the covenant. It was, but mm-hmm. because they were, uh, they were calling people back to the covenant, to obedience to the covenant, and to a proper understanding of the covenant, um, where there's no vision, the people perish. And Proverbs means where there is no prophetic insight uh, into the covenant, the people will run wild. And that's the mm-hmm. verb of the Aaron and the people running wild of the golden calf. So mm-hmm. a prophecy is all about prophetic vision. The Hebrew words chaza is in deep insight into the word of God. And uh, that's what the, so the, the prophets were, you know, they weren't allowed to mess with the covenant, basically, is what I'm saying. When we get into the New Testament, there's no national prophets anymore because there's no nation anymore. We have a multi-membered, you know, body of Christ. And so there's not a, a literal government being exercised. And um, and so uh, automatically the role of the prophet is greatly reduced. Um, and uh, the, the prophetic is defined. You know, Jesus is our great prophet. He's the one that's called us back to obedience to the covenant. So it's through him that we understand that we don't need those kind of prophets anymore. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, John the Baptist was the last, he was a crossover. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament calling people back, you know, to the covenant. But he mm. introduced Christ. And, uh, and, and so he ended that. Mm. Um, so New Testament prophecy, whatever it is, is something quite different. Well, it's this is interesting. Any- there's another scripture that's connecting to this for me. When uh, when God says in Jeremiah, no longer shall one say to his neighbor, you shall know the Lord, uh, because they all will know me. This is looking ahead to the new covenant, the reception of the Holy Spirit. So awesome. necessarily the gift of prophecy has to shift in function because we all have the Holy Spirit. And I think even is it first John that picks up on this as well. Like you don't need anyone to tell you the truth. The, the spirit is he, he, he can tell you, uh, he or, speaks straight to you and convict you of life. your sin. Go ahead. Right. It's the, the law is written in our heart now. Right. By, and, and obviously some of that function of teaching refers uh, is picked up by Bible teachers, not by prophets. Mm-hmm. But the, but prophecy still exists. It still gets mm-hmm. carried over into the new covenant, but its role is defined here and elsewhere in terms of uh, encouragement, uh, you know, consolation. Strengthening, encouraging, and comfort is here right. the, the NIV. So, and, and you wouldn't necessarily say that that was characteristic of Elijah or Elisha all the time. Right. For sure. <laughs> you know, but so that, so it has to be, it has to be comforting and upbuilding to people. It's not calling down fire from heaven on them. It's encouraging them deeper in their walk with God. And so uh, in in the New Testament, there's much less authority attached to it, which is why we don't have to. Sometimes as a pastor, I felt like stoning the odd person that came along and <laughs> <they're not> stupid, <laughs> non, non-prophecies, I call them. 
Um, but you know, that's not allowed. And, uh, uh, for better, for worse. Um, but prophecy is not, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's not given the same status. And also it's, it's regulated. It now becomes an encouraging, comforting function. Mm -hmm. And at, at some stage, I think, um, I think what? that okay. that it should carry that mm -hmm. uh, hallmark, mm -hmm. whatever it looks like. Yeah, the phrase that God's given me lately comes from uh, Psalm one hundred three, where I think, I think prophecy should renew your youth. When well, I when could do, I, I could do with some of that, so I'll take it. <laughs> when when Jesus says, "If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children." How much more does will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I, that scripture got linked to me, re, linked for me recently to Psalm 103, that um, God satisfies our desires with good things and renews our youth like the eagles. God satisfies our desires with good things, and it's interesting. I think it's in Matthew's Gospel where he he records Jesus's words a little di differently. He says, "If you know how to give good gifts, how much more will your father know how to give good gifts?" Luke hones in, I think it's Luke, Luke hones in on the good gift of being the Holy Spirit. He is the good thing with which God satisfies us. And the result of which is our youth is renewed like the eagles. And I think what, what better way to describe the result of being strengthened, encouraged, and, com and comforted than that you have hope. Your, when your youth is renewed, you have hope for the future. You have, you have a sense of anything is possible. My situation might be X, Y, or Z, but God can. And I, I think that that is the outcome of, of biblical New Testament spirit and, and empowered prophecy is it renews you. You're, not, not that you're running on lies or, or uh, you know the difference between just puffing somebody up with generic encouragement and prophetic words that... In, enable somebody to keep running when they were, you know, on, on the precipice of, of wanting to give up. I've received those words. In fact, I received a word like that. Here's a story for everybody. I told this to our church on, on Sunday. Last year, we were, uh, we were what we thought in a position to buy a home. And we've been praying and waiting on God for that to come to pass for our family here in Los Angeles for several years. and. That's no easy thing, you know, to get a, a home here in LA. And so we are at the point where we thought it was going to happen. And then, you know, economy stuff, market stuff, it just, it kind of came crashing down before our eyes to, to nobody's fault. That was, I think, three weeks before our Holy Spirit conference last year, where uh, we were faced with that reality. And so we were kind of walking into that conference a bit dejected, honestly. We were discouraged. On the last night of the conference, while one of our uh, guests was speaking, one of our other guests was uh, getting ready to leave the session because he had to go catch his flight uh, to get back to uh, his own church the next morning to preach. And on the way out, he pulled Nicole and I, Nicole's my wife, he pulled us in uh, you know, right there in the middle of the session, the guy was preaching. It's kind of like at the end of the service, everyone was standing and, and so on. So he pulls us in close and he begins to pray for us. And this guy's, he, I mean, his gift of prophecy is amazing. And he begins to pray for us. And then in the midst of the prayer, he pauses and he goes, a property was just stolen from you. 
God wants you to know that he's going to get it to you. And we couldn't believe it. I, I didn't know this, but Nicole had gone into that conference praying, God, would you please speak to us about our housing situation? And it was just such an on-time word. And so we obviously were encouraged by that, prayed, and just uh, were renewed. Our youth was renewed. Our hope was renewed. And then wouldn't you know it, you know, a handful of months later, I get a phone call that set this whole train in motion. And yesterday at the time of this recording, we moved into our home that we bought here in Los Angeles. Amazing. It's incredible. It's, it's a great story. And I, I remember uh, years ago, and Elaine and I were, it's a little bit similar to Nicole's situation. We were, um, you know, a kind of, uh, I, you know, talking to God, just maybe complaining a little, uh, <laughs> just pouring our heart out and feeling that we were going to be like uh, Moses. We, we weren't going to go over the Jordan and see some of the things that we longed to see. And uh, we weren't going to, we're going to be like Moses, not Caleb and Joshua. Anyway, we have been talking about this, moping a bit. And we were in this small group meeting in England. And uh, I had prayed and prophesied over everybody in this small group. There was what not many people, maybe 10 or 12. And it was quite remarkable. I can remember hearing a conversation in the spirit that our mm -hmm. husband and wife had had, and I repeated it to them. And, and uh, so the whole thing was just charged with the presence of God. Anyway, suddenly this man stands up and says, and I don't know if he'd ever done this before, but he just stood up and said in a very loud voice, very authoritatively, authoritatively he said, you think that you're Moses and you're not going over to the promised land. And God says, no, you're like Caleb and Joshua, and mm -hmm. you will see it. And in that moment, uh, you know, like Nicole in the house, uh, God moved prophetically to give us enormous encouragement. It wasn't that all of a sudden we had an instant worldwide ministry and revival broke out on every side and all the rest of it. It's just that God came in to give encouragement. And, you know, we can look back now, that was 2017 years ago, we can look back now and see how God has done that and what maybe it looks like. I mean, you know, there will always be things that we won't live to see, obviously. Uh, and But that some of the things in our lifetime that we had hoped to see, uh, actually, including getting involved with young younger leaders like you mm -hmm. who are influential, that some of those things specifically that we'd hoped for that weren't happening would begin to happen. And, mm -hmm. and we would have a chance to, you know, give some of what we've learned in God away to other people. And, and we've seen... And that, and that to us and, and some other things, you know, constituted going over the Jordan mm -hmm. and seeing the promised land. So, you know, we think we've, uh, you know, that, that we've seen a measure of fulfillment of that. It's very encouraging. Mm -hmm. I believe so, that you will see the complete fulfillment of that. I, I have a sense that you and Elaine will see more in your ministry in the latter portion of it. Uh, in that single season than every than than all the days of your previous season. Um well you're not I, you're not first first but what you're prophesying on air now. Uh mm -hmm. and you're not the first person that said that. And mm -hmm. uh so I think it's just 
you know, my spiritual father used to say to me, well, David, God can take your whole life to prepare you for the last 10 years. Exactly. And uh, I used to be so ticked off with him. Mm -hmm. That's discouraging. It's a discouraging thing to hear when you're younger. (laughs) But it it actually was encouraged. It was meant to be an encouragement. I know. No, God has his way in the end. And uh, just always when you're evaluating prophecy, look for that element. What was the impact on people? Did they feel trodden down? Did they feel worthless? Did they feel condemned? Or did they feel encouraged and edified and comforted? Uh, Because, you know, that's how we, one of the ways that we discern whether uh, a prophetic word is genuine or not. Maybe let's do this. Maybe let's close with one or two more stories. um, Because I have a sense that those are perhaps a bit more powerful and insightful for people. I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but if anything else comes to mind in in terms of uh, these types of occasions, we'd love to hear them. Well, I got one. uh, It's always good to have some unfulfilled ones. And by the way, the the main thing we get wrong with the prophetic is the timing. Because if you've Mm -hmm. had a a nice prophecy, you want it to happen yesterday, Mm -hmm. and we give up. We forget in the scriptures how many prophetic words were given that took a very long time to fulfill. But um, I met in Indianapolis a year ago, and I'll just throw this out because it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, An apostolic brother called Jimmy Seibert, and he leads a movement called Antioch. And Mm, I know it. Yeah. And I I just have a a lot of time. We, We love the Antioch Church in Indianapolis, amazing church. And uh, so we were uh, speaking together at a conference uh, in Indianapolis, and uh, and uh, we were just enjoying meeting him uh, and feeling of one spirit. And so many of the things that we believed and have lived for and stood for in our life, we shared. And um, anyway, kind of casually before he left, so he had to leave early, um, He just walked away a little bit like your speaker last year. You know, Hmm. he had to leave early to be in another place in the Sunday morning. He just walked up and said three words to us. He looked at us and said, one more move. And uh, we are moving house, and I do not consider that to be the fulfillment. I can, you know, it was was a geographical move. Um, And it was the moment he said it, it was God. I knew it was God. Mm -hmm. So... I, I'm putting that out there because we'll be interesting to see, you know, how well, God. I think I know the answer to that. That seems obvious. I think it's to move to Los Angeles and and be a teacher in residence at at our church. Duh. <laughs> well, thank you for the invitation. <laughs> <laughs> I can't yeah. woo you with California. <laughs> uh, well, but yeah, I mean, oh gee, I mean, I could. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure now, you, of course you put me on the spot and I'm, I mean, I'm sharing, I've shared a couple of things, and, but we definitely have had, uh, prophetic words that have come to pass. Um, I, I heard a story recently that was amazing. Uh, it was uh, at a pastor's conference and the pastor was sharing how, uh, one of his friends who is also a pastor, um, he was at home one night with his wife and he was tucking his daughter into bed. And I was particularly moved by this story because uh, I can personally relate to it. So the the man was uh, 
tucking his daughter into bed and he sings her the song every night, which is the same song that I sing our little girl very regularly. You are my sunshine. <laughs> and so he tucks her into bed, he sings her the song and then he, uh, he goes to bed and he, when he walks into the bedroom, his wife is like a bit teary, a bit weepy. And he asks her what's wrong. And she says to him, you know, you're such a good dad to our daughter. And it's, I love it, but at the same time, it, it kind of, uh, it touches me in a bit of a sore spot because I never had that with my own father. And so um, fast forward some time, I'm not sure how long, a little bit of time. They're at a prophetic gathering and there's a visiting minister who's praying over people in the room. I think it's like a leadership type setting. He He's just kind of going down the line and praying over people and prophesying for over them. And then he gets to her and he pauses and he says, I don't have a prophecy for you, um, but the Lord gave me a song for you. Hmm. <laughs> and then he starts to sing, you are my sunshine. Amazing. And that was God's word to her. <laughs> and, and think of the risk, you know, he probably thought, oh my gosh, you know. You cannot it, practice spiritual gifts without the faith to look stupid. Um, we, back in 1998, in uh, uh, September, I think it was, our uh, second daughter, Anna, who's always been prophetic, lived up to her name biblically, mm. um, came and said... Um, you know, I, and she was, she would have been 12 and she came and said, I, I've had a dream. And in the dream, uh, the roses were blooming in December, which where we lived in the Lake Huron snow belt, uh, <laughs> that doesn't happen. They wouldn't even bloom in barely in October, let alone December. Um, roses were blooming in December. Uh, and she said to, and, and mommy, you, you were pregnant. And, uh, we'd had, we, we had seven children and, you know, it was a rough year, 1998. It's funny how you remember these things, but it was a rough year. So we weren't really thinking of having, you know, having any more at that point. Anyway, so some time went past and a couple of months went past and it was early December and I went out to buy Elaine some British Turkish delight. It was a place you could get British chocolate mm -hmm. and anyone that's British, they will not eat any chocolate other than what has actually come from England. Mm -hmm. You ask, uh, Amy Stewart in Nashville. It's, it's the same as an Australian. You gotta have Aussie chocolate. Same as the Australians. And, uh, anyway, um, so she said, Oh, that's wonderful. And she ate this Turkish delight and promptly threw it up just like that. Oh. And she looked at me and said, oh, my goodness, I have this feeling, you know. <laughs> so and she was quite persistent about it. So I said, well, I'll go out by a pregnancy test. She hadn't felt anything up to that minute anyway. And she was pregnant and it had been the mildest winter that we'd ever had. And the next day, the local paper arrived in the days when we had local papers and there was a big 
the headline in the local paper was <laughs> Rose Bloom in December. There was a lady with a bunch of roses and there was a picture on the front page of the paper. And that was our son, James. I can, I can hear him plodding above. That's what rem reminded me of the story. Mm. Um, wow. And he was born in August of 1999. And so, you know, uh, I mean, God just, it's it, God's ways are wonderful. And, uh, uh, and above our comprehension. And I think that we just need, it's like you said something earlier, Jay, we need to move in the supernatural. I, you know, I tell people, don't worry about whether you get this gift, that gift, or even speak in tongues, but mm -hmm. just get in there and ask God for some manifestation mm -hmm. of the spirit. There's a whole bunch of them there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Mm -hmm. You know, we're meant to live in the supernatural and be a supernatural people. And uh, and God wants to use every single one of us in one way or another in that in that capacity. Mm -hmm. Amen. It's no wonder Paul says that when unbelievers come into a gathering of this nature that we're describing, that the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, "God is really among you." And that is our prayer for one and all uh, coming up in just um, the end of September for our Holy Spirit conference. Really encourage you all to join us, hs-conference.com or just go to c3losangeles.com and that will get you signed up. David Campbell and his wife Elaine will be with us. So will Dr. Jack Deere. It's going to be a remarkable time together. We love you. Thank you so much for listening to Good Theology. Thank you so much, David.